Thank you, Tim, and praise team, instrumentalists. Thank you so much. It's good to have you here this morning. Thank you for coming to God's house on this Sunday morning. What a week it's been, huh? I do welcome everyone that's here, those in present, those who are present here, those who are out in the cars. And we always have some who come and listen closely. We welcome them and welcome those who are listening now over the Internet and who will listen over the Internet. I heard from a young family who said we can't be there, but we're listening on the Internet. I said, that's great. Glad you're here no matter how it might be. I shouldn't mention it, but I have a bunch of marks on my face, and I apologize for how I look today. I apologize for how I look every day. But uh, I got madder and madder as this week went on, and so I just had to find somebody to fight with. And uh, I know I came out of it looking pretty bad, but you ought to see the way she looks. Okay, it was the dermatologist, all right, so it wasn't uh, that, but I did get angrier and angrier as the week went on in all honesty I was pretty calm on Tuesday and Wednesday and then it got worse and worse so I apologize for my looks and my bad attitude but I I needed a word uh, from a friend so I called a friend and, and he's got a message for us today so listen to this one Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing and God said, no, I'm not going to tell you Habakkuk because if I told you what I was doing you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us that know him put our trust in him and him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. Nobody can say it better than Billy Graham. Yes, we can clap for that. Amen. We put our trust in him and him alone. Him and Him alone. Amen? We'll talk about it more later on, but I am like a lot of men I know for some reason. Maybe it's our brain damage. But we're obsessed with studying wars. And I have particularly, since I was a child, been obsessed with studying two American wars that took more lives than any other. One, of course, is a southern boy. I've studied the, the Civil War too much, probably. Most of you don't know that in the Civil War, more Americans died than every war before and after. Did you know that? Including World War II. More Americans died in that conflict, a horrible conflict. Uh, there's still debate about which battle was the bloodiest. The Battle of Gettysburg was the bloodiest overall. But in a single day, it would have been Antietam or Manassas, in which 20-some thousands Americans died in one day. Terrible. I've also studied World War II pretty extensively. My uncle Fletcher, 
my mama's, one of my mama's many siblings was a Marine in World War II. And he was sent, and we were talking about Veterans Day, Brother Tim, on, on Wednesday, but he was sent with 30,000 Marines to take the island of Iwo Jima. And over the course of that battle, 26,000 human beings lost their lives. 20,000 Japanese defenders and 6,000 Marines died in that one taking of that one island, tiny little speck in the Pacific called Iwo Jima. Today in our text, in John 18, we're going to see how a small army came to take one man, one innocent soul. So turn with me to John chapter 18 as we study one of the greatest in all the Word of God. Now, let me preface my remarks even more before we read it. Before we read it, you need to know a battle was already occurring long before this happened. The battle of the ages began even before creation because Satan led a rebellion in heaven. He was an angel, and he led a rebellion and took thousands of angels with him in his rebellion and was cast out. Remember that? And then God set in motion a way to redeem the world. Even in Genesis 3.15 it says that God prophesied that his son would crush the head of the evil one. So Satan set about doing everything he could to stop the son of God. Remember what happened in Bethlehem where the evil one got into the heart of a king and he sent his troops to kill every baby boy? Remember that? He did everything he could to stop Christ. He got into the heart of a disciple named Judas. We studied it recently. And Judas and that great treachery betrayed our Lord. We'll see it happen exactly in the passage for today. And so he brings troops to take the Lord Jesus. But you see, he was playing right in the hands of God because God always had it in his heart that his son would die. Well, we're going to see what happens as we look at this text and see the, the, the unfolding events as this leads up to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus would suffer shame, humiliation, torture, physical suffering, and death. The time we're going to read about today and in the next few weeks seemed to be Satan's highest and greatest hour because he was accomplishing the plan that he had purposed long, many hundreds and thousands of years before, and that was to do away with the Son of God it seemed to be Satan's greatest hour. For some of us this week may seem to be Satan's greatest hour, right? We'll talk about it. But I'm going to tell you, few scenes show the heart of God like John 18. Few scenes show the grace and mercy and forgiveness and power like John 18. The private ministry of Jesus with his disciples has now ended. The upper room discourse that we've been studying for quite a while, including 
John 17, the Lord's Prayer as Jesus, God the Son, prays to God the Father. It is now over. And the public humiliation now begins. We will see in this chapter, man do his worst, but God do his best. Did you hear me? We will see a powerful revelation of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. Now John's gospel is saturated with symbols, and we will see three of those symbols even this morning. We will see the garden, the sword, and the kiss, each symbolizing something very powerful. So look at the text with me, please. John 18, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, or brook, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Well, of course he did. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Well, I guess he told us, didn't he? So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back. Now look at verse 6. They stepped back and fell to the ground. Why? Why did they fall to the ground? What happened that made these seasoned soldiers fall to the ground? We'll come back to verse 6. Then Jesus answered, asked them again, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. They said, Well, I told you I'm he. Jesus replied, So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you've given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. We'll stop there. This passage is so full, it, it's, it's powerful, I must tell you. First of all, we see the symbol of the garden, which symbolizes obedience. We see the, the garden of obedience. Look back to verse 1. Uh, just to the east, uh, if you see any pictures of Jerusalem, you always see the gold dome, which is not the most important thing there at all, by, by a long shot. But it's up on a high plateau, and it's surrounded by walls. And just to the east is a pretty deep valley called the Kidron Valley. When the rains are flowing, there's a Kidron Brook that goes through there. Most of the time, it's dry. And just to the east of that massive hill in that valley is another hill, pretty good size, called the Mount of Olives. It's a place where Jesus would go on the other side to go to his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to a small village called Bethany or Bethany. The scene was crowded in Jerusalem where they had been in the upper room. Pilgrims were arising from all over the known world to go to Passover. 
It was crowded, it was loud, it was noisy. So Jesus would often retreat with his disciples, yes, to Bethany, but if he didn't go that far, he would go into that garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. That garden of olive trees is still there today. I've told you this. It now has walls in it, and you can go into some churches that are built there with the olive trees. There are some private areas you can go into, but there's olive trees all over this garden, and there are flowers. There's all kinds of flowers there. Bougainvillea and a number of beautiful, beautiful flowers. But he would go there to get away from the crowded city. But in that garden, something special happened. Yes, it is symbolic of obedience because there our Lord Jesus followed out a plan that was set forth, not set forth, not in Caiaphas' house, not in the trials, but from the heart of God. There our Lord Jesus gave himself up to this crowd, this Roman authority. Why? You see, many years before, there was another garden. It was called the Garden of Eden. Remember reading about it in Genesis 1 and 2? And there, everything was perfect, and then sin entered into the world because of a choice made by Adam and Eve. In that first garden, there was a choice that led to sin and death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, a choice was made that led to our life. Listen carefully to me. Eden was the garden of disobedience. Eden was the garden of disobedience and sin. But Gethsemane was the garden of obedience and submission. Eden was a place where the first wrong occurred. Gethsemane was the place where it was righted. Now Jesus knew fully what was before him. He knew what was going to happen. So what happened was no surprise. We know from this gospel and the other three gospels, the synoptic, those who are seen, S-Y-N, together, optic together, synoptic. We know from all the other gospels and this one, what happened in this instance. We know that he had left eight of his men out in the outer edge of the garden and he took Peter James and John, Judas was already gone, wasn't he? He took his other eight and left them to pray for him, but he desperately needed Peter, James, and John, those closest to him. You see, Jesus had a human side to him, and that human side desperately wanted fellowship. He needed to be around brothers. He needed the strength that they could have given him. But we know from other texts, and later on we'll see what happened to even those three. They fell asleep. Before we judge them, before we judge them harshly and hardly, we need to look at our own lives. It's easy to boast like they did. Oh, we'll never leave you, Jesus. We're going to be strong. It's easier at some times, but what about now in America? It's going to get harder to be a follower of Christ. It's going to get harder and harder to do a lot of things. Religious liberty was not mentioned last night in the acceptance speeches. Did you notice that? There's a reason why. Religious freedom will be fought. 
And yes, many protected classes of people were mentioned last night. The LGBTQ, ABC, W, E, I, R, D, O, S crowd, they will run amok, believe me. Their agenda is not yet accomplished. It is not going to be an easy time. It was not an easy time then. Before we judge these disciples, you should have stood strong. How many of us are going to stand strong in the next four or eight years under President Kamala Harris? Excuse me, did I get that wrong? No, I don't think I did. Don't think I did. Okay, yes, I've gotten angry as the week has gone by. I have. I admit that, and I'm trying to get hold of that. But before we judge these other disciples, it's easy to boast when things are going our way. But Jesus manifests the ultimate obedience to the will of the Father. The garden was a place of obedience and submission. Now, second, we see another major point, and there was the kiss. Again, symbolic of what? Symbolic of treachery. We see the kiss. Look at verses 2 through 9 as we see the unfolding of what happened as they come to take Jesus. And again, from this and other texts, we know Judas had lived with Jesus for three years. Jesus had protected him. Think of the opportunities Judas had and had squandered. He comes to take the Lord Jesus in this darkened garden. Now you say, well, why was the garden so dark? There were no street lights. There were no flashlights. There were dingy lamps and torches. There was darkness in the nighttime. Some of you, yes, it was pitch black, Jake. Some of us learned that in the recent power outage, didn't we? Whew. We know it was dark, and they come to him in the darkness of night in the company of these temple guards. Now, the word band that's used, or company that's used in verse 3, don't know what your version calls it, but it's a word that also referred in the Roman army to a cohort. And some of you in academia know the word cohort. But it was one-tenth of a Roman legion. Now, we don't know exactly how many came here. We don't. But a Roman legion varied. Now, even though the word legion means a thousand, Roman legions varied between 3,400 and 6,000. The greatest and the most powerful was called the Tenth Legion. And we know a cohort was one-tenth of a Roman legion. So it could have been as many as 600 soldiers sent with the temple police, with the group from the Pharisees and the temple officials. We don't know, but it could have been up to 600 who came to take a lamb, a sinless, innocent lamb. Now you need to know, my friend, Jesus was in full control of this entire situation, Judas did expect some kind of chicanery, some kind of deception, some kind of uh, fight even. And so we know, again, from this and other texts, that he kissed Jesus. Well, Jesus shocked both Judas and the arresting officers by boldly presenting himself. 
He did not try to hide behind his disciples. He didn't try to hide behind a tree or a rock. He says, here I am. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? I am he. Kept asking the same stupid question. Well, I done told you I'm here. I'm right here. By presenting himself so openly, he was protecting his other disciples, wasn't he? Boys, this is about me, not about them. Leave them alone. This is about me. And in verse 6, the Bible says, when he said it again, when he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Why did these arresting soldiers fall to the ground? These are the Delta Force boys of the year. You need to understand, one of my dearest friends in the world, he might be listening, Gary, is a retired two-star general, commander of the Delta Force. Now, he's not somebody I ever want to make mad. I'm just going to tell you. I just don't want to make my friend Gary mad. Because he's learned a hundred ways just to hurt me. And then to really hurt me. Well, let me just tell you. The Roman legionnaires were tough. They, it is often said in secular literature that one Roman soldier could take on ten of any other kind of soldier in the world. They were fearless, they were well-armed, and experienced. And you put those three categories together, you have a powerful soldier. But when Jesus steps forward and says, I am he, they fall to the ground. What happened? Well, it doesn't even tell us. The scripture sometimes leaves some things to our own imagination. It's obvious Jesus was in charge here. It was an emotionally charged situation. They're prepared for conflict. Judas perhaps has told them, now listen, Jesus is probably not going to fight you, but those other disciples, you better watch out for them. One of them, there was another Simon. You may not have even studied this, but he had been a zealot, maybe even a member of what's called the Sicarii, who carried small daggers everywhere they went. And when they'd get near a Roman, shoo, Maybe some of them are still like that. You've got to watch those Christian boys. You know, they they got some temper in them. You've got to watch them now. They're coming fully expecting conflict. And Jesus steps forward in charge and says, It's me you've come to take. They fall back. And when they met this surrender and this calm, this manifestation of divine power, they're just, they just cannot handle it. They cannot take it. The Judas kiss was one of the basis acts of treachery. A kiss is supposed to be a sign of affection, a sign of devotion. But here it manifests the worst. You see, when people today pretend to know and love God, but don't, it's pretense they are committing the sin of Judas. To portray Jesus with a kiss was the basis of treachery. Again, my friends, before we put Judas and these Romans down, how many times have we also betrayed him? Maybe not with a brazen kiss, but how many times have we betrayed him through our own disobedience? And last, we see the sword. 
Last we see the sword. Look at verse 10. All these disciples had earlier courageously pledged their devotion to Christ. They'd all said, okay, Jesus, you can count on us when the going gets rough. We with you. You know, like they say, sometimes we're behind you. We're just way behind you. Some fall asleep. But Peter decides, Peter, of course, always the first to speak up, raise his hand, first to volunteer, first for everything, the impetuous one. Peter says, I'm going to take care of this situation. So he pulls out a small sword, decides to prove how devoted he was to the Lord Jesus, and he gets into action. Well, Jesus had already warned them, opposition's going to come. He had recently warned them, things are going to turn. It's not going to be nice and happy anymore. It's going to turn real bad. He had already warned them. Maybe he's warned us too. Expect opposition. He had provided for them and protected them for so long. But he said, now things are going to get difficult. You see, Peter's sword symbolized rebellion against the will of God. Why, why do you say that, Frank? Because he was fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon in the wrong place. He should have known that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would give himself up voluntarily for the Roman soldiers who were taking him, for Judas who betrayed him, for you and me. Oh my goodness, you got to admire Peter's sincerity and his courage, but not his judgment. It was certainly a demonstration of what we would call zeal without knowledge. Jesus did not need Peter's protection, did he? He didn't need it, and he didn't want it. The Bible tells us another place Jesus could call down legions of angels. Remember what I just told you a legion was? He could have called down legions of angels. One death angel killed 184,000 Assyrians once upon a time. He could have called down thousands of angels. So what happens? Again, Jesus is in charge of this whole situation. I mean, there's no doubt who, who's in charge. So he goes over to Malchus, the servant, the slave. He probably put a hand up to the soldiers. Slow down, boys. Calm down. I got to protect Peter. I got to take care of him. He goes over and he touches the ear of Malchus and heals him. It was an act of grace to the disciples because he was protecting them from getting hurt. It was an act of grace toward this servant, this slave named Malchus, because he was just along because he was told to come along. But it was an act of grace to all of us. Why? Because Jesus could have ended this at the very moment he wanted. In his human desire to escape pain, which is human for all of us, he could have said, I'm tired of this. Call down the angels. I'm gone. But he chose to go through this for you and me. It was an act of grace. And it reveals that grace toward us. If Jesus had the power to stun an armed mob... And heal a severed ear. He could have saved himself. But he willingly submitted for you and me. 
Oh, my friends, we do see three things in this text this morning. Obedience, exampled by Jesus. Treachery, exampled by Judas. And rebellion, exampled by Peter. I just ask you this morning, who are you going to follow? You may say we're in dark times. Satan is ruling the day in the U.S. of A. But who are you going to follow? I'm going to stand for Christ. I'm going to stand with Christ. Will you join me? Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, we choose Christ. In Jesus' name, we confess that we have rebelled many times. We've been treacherous in our own lives. We failed you so many times, more than we could count. But you did what you did in that garden for us, as well as for the other disciples, as well as for all. Oh God, we pray right now that we would choose to follow Jesus. Let Jesus do what he wants to do, to forgive, to cleanse, to heal, to save. Oh God, help us to put our trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.